Welcome to the Listening Party podcast for April 17th, 2020. I'm your host, Rebecca Haas, the Director of Community Engagement for Pacific Opera. The Listening Party is a time when we get together with friends and play music. We tell each other the stories that make that music special to us. The Listening Party is a time to share the stories that make us and the music that accompanies a chapter of our life. Once you hear the podcast, then follow it up with the Listening Party playlist, and you can hear the recordings of the artists and the music featured in each week's episode. There is a new episode every Friday, and you can listen at any time on demand. This is the fourth edition of the podcast, and this episode is actually quite unique. This week we will hear from three principals of the cast of Carmen. Our patrons here in Victoria will know that Pacific Opera's production of Bizet's Carmen, which was very much anticipated, was set to open this week, on Thursday, April 16th. The opera company made the painful decision to postpone the production the week before rehearsals were to start, as our country went into social distancing and asked that all non-essential workplaces close. Theatre and opera companies around the world continue to announce postponements and the cancellation of shows, festivals and seasons due to COVID-19, and there is so much uncertainty in our field. I do wonder when we'll be able to gather again in the theatre and celebrate stories and music and performers. I too am missing Carmen this week, and all that producing a show gives my community. While we wait here in Victoria for Carmen to be rescheduled, I thought it would be terrific to meet three of the principal cast members on the podcast this week. I'm delighted to share with you these amazing and talented singer-actors who are your Carmen, Don Jose, and Escamillo, the Toreador. I enjoyed each conversation so much, and I really look forward to meeting them in person in the future and hearing their voices here in Victoria. With each of the artists, we talked about how they decided to become singers. After all, it's not really the most obvious job for most people. And we talked about roles they've sung and loved, roles they dream of singing, and of course, we talked about what they were looking forward to about this production of Carmen. As always, these conversations are recorded on Zoom, an online virtual platform of conversation and video and sound, so please bear with any hiccups in the sound due to internet connections. It's always a bit of an unstable experience. There are lots of jokes being made about video conferencing. Even though you hear only the audio, I do it as a video conference. It's more connected for me to be able to look the artist in the eye as we share these stories. In the many jokes we're hearing right now, there is the continual question of what people are wearing. Is it formal on the top and pajama bottoms? <laughs> in fact, I just read that some judges have complained about lawyers showing up on the conference call in bed or in swimwear by the pool. <laughs> now, I didn't quite have that experience with my first guest, but where he was was a bit of a surprise. See if you can guess by the sound of the tape. Hi, I'm Eric Manhannigan, baritone. I would have been singing Escamillo in our production of Pacific Opera Vittoria's uh, Carmen before we all decided to be very healthy and practice safe social distancing. Do you wonder what that acoustic is? My guess is Toyota Camry because he spoke to me from the inside of a car. He was in a tank top so I knew he wasn't here in Victoria because it's not that warm here yet. He was actually in California. This conversation had to be rescheduled. We were to speak the day before but when I went on the call Eric didn't show up, and I was worried that something had come up. 
my fiance, we just came out of a, she's in a wedding planning meeting right now. So we, her father, her grandfather is 96 years old. Oh my gosh. And he's been really isolated with all of this. Yeah. And we actually caught COVID at the beginning of the outbreak and oh. have since recovered. So we talked to our doctors and they said that actually we were clear to go up and take care of him a little bit, you know, cause he's, and even just spend time with him because people are so careful around him now. So we've been up here kind of taking care of him. And, you know, I'm so sorry about yesterday. He just, it wasn't even a bad fall. He just tripped, you know, but of course every fall is a little panic. It was great to talk to Eric. Listening to his speaking voice, I really look forward to hearing him sing in person someday. We talked about how he got started as a singer, what inspires him, and how he was approaching his first time singing Escamillo in Carmen. Neither of my parents are musicians, but um, my grandparents all are, or were rather, very avid classical musicians. And so we grew up with a lot of classical music in the house. And I was trained as a jazz musician. I never sang. I never saw myself as somebody with a voice, but I played upright bass. And I had an old school jazz teacher who told me that he would never let me play anything I wasn't able to sing um, because he was very big on that. And so I ended up taking voice lessons. So then one day when I went to high school in Southern California, my best friend and I, Anthony Whitson Martini, who is now a baritone working in the States and everything, Walt Disney Concert Hall had just opened in Los Angeles. And as part of that opening, they did this great series of celebrity recitals. It was weird because I grew up as a low voice, all the tenors and the sopranos and everybody are always celebrated, right? And you always just see yourself as a background figure and you know, it's so-and-so in the pips and you figure that you'll always be part of the pips. Um, and Bryn Tervell was touring his big English Isles program with Malcolm Martineau and he gave that in Walt Disney Concert Hall. And I remember we sat in those seats that are behind the artist, you know, and he, he opened his mouth and I, Anthony and I looked at each other and we went, oh my God, that's what I want to do. Hearing a voice like that, you know, a voice that, a voice that sounded like mine and that people could really connect to made a huge difference, you know. I, it's kind of like a body image thing almost. You know, when you see people who look like you in mainstream media, then you start to realize that what you have is um, a value. And I very much had that with my own voice when I saw that recital. I also think it's um, really interesting that you were attracted to the art form through concert recital, which mm -hmm. is, as you know, it's the, the long suffering kind of step cousin in our world because opera is sort of the glitzier shinier upfront uh, singers mm -hmm. tend to be trained and pushed into the operatic extreme because there's not enough work in concert or nobody goes to right. recitals um, and yet they can be as you point out right they can be incredibly moving experiences uh, but not mm -hmm. something people often gravitate towards it, right. so i mean do you do you consciously work to make that a part of your regular season because it feeds you in a certain way I mean, I do. I make a really conscious effort to make that a part because to me, at the end of the day, what I want to produce is something that is beautiful and something that means something. And it does not mean that different sounds aren't made, but um, 
I mean, when I think of the generations of singers that I delved into as I started my training, um, I mean, f for instance, I was obsessed and still am obsessed with the recordings of Hermann Pry um, and Margaret Price and Hans Hotter and those sorts of people. And there's this idea that to sing opera on a grand scale that you have to develop on a grand scale. Um, but at the end of the day, it's the smaller, more compact pearls of text and music that make the biggest difference. And you even think um, in real life, you know, the Iliad can say so much, but the three most meaningful and complex and powerful words in the English language are I love you. Right. So you learn how to deliver and how to communicate that sentiment on a basic level, then communicating the grand experiences, I think, is actually much more fulfilling. I mean, I remember one of the first times that I was really moved by a piece of operatic theater. We were doing a new production of Tobias Picker's Emmeline at Opera Theater of St. Louis. Um, and we had Joyce Alcuri, of course, you know, one of our country's favorites. And um, Jim Robinson, a great uh, director and mentor of mine. And there was no spectacle. There was, of course, there was a production, but the production wasn't there to explain itself. It just, they had real people on stage saying real things and experiencing real pain and real joy. And I was a small, small compromario role on the side. Um, but I'd stand off stage waiting for bows every night, just weeping. You know, my fake sideburns would be falling off and all my makeup, I just looked totally horrible. But I also think about uh, this production that we just did of Zalame at the Spoleto Festival, um, which I had been assigned to do just a small compromario role and I ended up jumping in last minute and taking over the role of Johanneman. Um, and we had these amazing directors, uh, Patrice and Moshe uh, Lizer. Uh, and of course, okay, this is not a political statement, but, you know, of course we have a wide resurgence of the far right in the U.S. Um, and so they had this really kind of scandalous production of Yohananan as the far right um, televangelist um, and really not painting him in this heroic light at all. It was, he was abusive and they really highlighted the horrible things he said about women and so on, and they did it, in, you know, in Charleston, Carolina. Um, the Americans were a little worried about how it was going to go down. You know, that is uh, that is a conservative part of the country, but what they had to say was so clear and so stripped of any. It might sound like it had judgment on it, but they just presented the material as it was and framed it in a certain way. Um, and the storytelling was so powerful that audiences there, even if it um, brought up some uncomfortable conversations, they really took to it. And that was, um, that, was very, that was very interesting for me in these political times to see that you could present material in such a way and present uncomfortable truths and conversations in such a way, but if you were saying it without judgment and just laying it at the table, that people would listen and they would look and they would interact. And, converse with it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Carmen, uh, which yeah. is in a delay. Have you sung Toreador before or would this have been your first? This would have been my first Escamillo. 
but you've sung the aria at many a party, I'm sure. No, I, I you know, it's so funny. It was never something um, that people asked me to do. And, you know, I used to get so offended about it. I would think, oh my God, no, am I not suave enough? Am I not, you know, and I'm not sexy enough. My fiance is laughing at me outside the car. Um, but because I am at the end of the day, I'm a pretty goofy, lighthearted guy. So it, it really wasn't something that had been asked of me for so long. I think it's a lot more playful than a lot of people give it. I have this wonderful French coach, uh, Benedict Jourdois, um, and uh, we were laughing about this because, you know, here in 2020, if you go to the bar and somebody approaches you and acts all sexy and suave and serious and offers to buy you a drink, you're probably gonna think, well, what the hell, go away. You know, I'm just not, I don't have time, I'm busy. But if somebody comes up and makes you smile, you know, little chuckle, a little bit of playfulness, you know, you might take that drink, you know? Because we're all just too serious. We have too many, you know, we're all posturing all the time. So it's refreshing when somebody comes along who is authentically themselves and doesn't posture and lets you laugh and lets you smile. And so I've been kind of diving into that with Escamillo a little bit, because of course that's what drives Don Jose crazy, right? Is Don Jose wants to be this big macho, macho I mean, he's a soldier, right? Um, and he has a guy who comes in and just is who he is. And of course, everybody goes to him over Don Jose and it drives him mad. Each guest this week shared with me a story of a memorable performance, and I heard a great variety of stories, and each one revealed to me something different about that singer and what they value in performance. This particular story from Eric really reveals something I've always believed, that singers are like elite athletes. They have similar challenges in terms of arriving with mental toughness, discipline, focus, balance, self-care. A singer has to cope with a lot of things off stage and still show up on stage and deliver the aria you've been expecting. There can be so many pressures, but in a moment of struggle, sometimes there's a great epiphany and a door opening. And that's what happened to Eric. That production of Zalame actually happened to come during really emotionally the hardest time of my life. Um, it was a real low point for me. It was a real, um, it was not good. <laughs> and so this Yohananon thing, when it came up, was actually, I mean, I, I volunteered for it. I stepped up for it. I had a team around that let me flourish, but um, it was terrifying. And we had this beautiful production where, um, you know, Yohananon sings off stage for most of the show, but there is a, an extended 25 minute scene where he comes out of the dungeon. And um, for this production, they had me walk out onto stage as an entire house set was coming, being dropped in from the ceiling. And I would land in a spot with my Bible and the house set would drop in around me um, with this beautiful Strauss orchestral interlude and um, I was in such a low place and I was having such a hard time and I I just I was 
terrified because everybody told me that I was crazy for doing it. Um, and I was a little crazy for doing it. Um, and I knew that I was taking a big risk. And the house came down, you know, there's a beautiful sort of four bar entrance before Yohanan opens his mouth and really sings this huge entrance. Um, and I was shaking and I was crying and I was, I was thinking of somebody at the time. Um, and then my entrance bar came up. You know, you hear the beautiful horn call. And first you think, holy shit, that orchestra is loud. And then you open your mouth and I just kind of let this wash of sound come out of me. And after those first two bars were done, I just, I thought, oh my God, I can do this. Even in this dark, the most dark moments that I've had, everybody is kind of not betting against me, but a lot of people really were sitting there with arms crossed seeing, you know, saying, well, who does this kid think he is? What can he do? And I opened my mouth and I, I knew that even in my darkest moment, I had really nailed it. Um, and that was a, that was a very enlightening sort of, strengthening experience and that's probably you know all artists go through different chapters of their artistic life and their artistic development um, and that was the first time that I even really left um, I knew that I was no longer a student I knew that I was no longer a young artist I knew that I was meant to do this and um, I better sing the rest of the scene an amazing moment of realization on so many levels I often work with young singers in summer programs as a creative living coach and this is something that comes up quite a lot, something that Eric is pointing to, which is when does a singer who's been studying and been a student, when do they feel like they really can call themselves an artist? Who has the power to decide that? Is that up to a conductor, a director? I sometimes joke that it's someplace you get your passport stamped, now you're an artist. But when can you call yourself that? I actually believe that we are all always artists. It's in everything. It's how we read a book. It's how we prepare our meals, how we take a walk. Being an artist is not something that just happens in your craft, whether you're a painter or a writer, a cook, or an opera singer. Eric started out as a jazz musician on the bass. This singer, who would have been our Carmen, always knew what she was here to do. My name is Carolyn Sproul. I'm a mezzo-soprano. You know, I have two big moments that come to mind. I think that, and they're about 10 years apart. So the first was when I was about four or five years old. My parents rented The Sound of Music and I watched it and I was just so enthralled. And every week, in fact, my mom and I would go to the video store and she'd say like, what do you want to rent? And every week I'd say The Sound of Music <laughs> and then they just bought it and I would just watch it over and over again. And then they got me a piano and piano lessons and then the sheet music. And so I would, I learned to play the piano and accompany, my, accompany myself. And uh, really since I was, yeah, four or five, I was like singing all the time, practicing piano all the time, uh, you know, creating plays and making the, like, you know, performing for friends and family in the neighborhood. So um, I never thought then about a career because I was a child. I was 14 and I started looking at my mom's CD collection and she had um, a CD of Maria Callas singing, you know, various arias. And I remember so vividly one night, late at night, listening with my headphones um, and I got to Casta Diva from Norma and I was just like, 
just like amazed by her voice, by the aria, the music. And I listened over and over again for like hours. And that was really the moment since then. I, I was just so focused on being an opera singer. And, and I, I think I've only sung opera since that moment. And then were you heartbroken that you were not a soprano? <laughs> yeah, I really, I tried. Oh my goodness. You know, when I was 15, I, I almost really messed things up because I tried to sing like Lucia and, um, oh man. And I was so keen, like on like, oh, Traviata. I learned all these roles, um, but like a third down because I couldn't actually <laughs> sing them <laughs> that high. <laughs> um, yeah, it wasn't in the cards for me. <laughs> I've certainly embraced it now. There's so much wonderful mezzo rep. Coming back to Carmen, it's like, oh, I guess the first time I sang it was two years ago. And it was like, oh, now the voice is, is growing and, and I can give more in the lower register. I can, I can you know, it's, it's becoming much better suited for this, this role. Yeah. The Pacific Opera production of Carmen would have opened on April 16th. I asked Carolyn, what was she most looking forward to singing in this opera? I think that maybe my answer would have changed, you know, if, if we were opening right now and I was really in it. Um, I, I love the scene uh, where she's in the second act where she's with Jose and, uh, and he's getting, you know, called away and she gets very angry and then convinces him to, to stay. I mean, it's just such fantastic music. Um, you sort of learn a bit more about their characters and just seeing how that all plays out is fantastic. The final scene too. I mean, really the whole, it's such a great, great opera. <laughs> it's hard to just choose one moment. Carmen is a dream role, of course, but I was curious about what other career highlights really stand out for Carolyn. I sang Dora Bella this season at the Met, uh, which was a big dream. Uh, and I'll sing Dora Bella next season, well, hopefully next season, uh, hopefully it'll happen in London, uh, in this, this is the same production as at the Met. It, you know, meant so much to me because, oh, I made my Met debut in 2014-15 season, I believe, and have sung some small roles there, but this was my first leading role, so it was, you know, very exciting to be doing that. Um, it was also challenging because I had just one scheduled performance, so what that means is that I was the understudy for, I think, well, it ended up being, I think, seven shows. Um, and then I had one scheduled performance that I knew about like a year and a bit before. Uh, so the way that works is you do some rehearsals in a rehearsal room. And then your first time doing it with orchestra, with costumes, with the cast, with the conductor, with everything is in your performance on stage. No rehearsal. <laughs> so... I've never done something like that before. I've always had the luxury of, you know, rehearsing with the orchestra and on stage. Uh, it was very, very, very nerve wracking, but such a wonderful experience of, of growth and of learning. I found, yeah, on the day of, I was like crazy, crazy nervous. But as soon as I got on, on stage, it was not at all intimidating. I felt like such warmth and you know no welcoming from the audience from from everyone and and it was like just time stopped amazing energy just such a special experience and i'm so grateful that all my colleagues were were so supportive and lovely and wonderful wonderful learning experience yeah. and so i'm gonna have to ask the obvious singer question is what is it like to sing in that hall what is it like to stand on that stage and oh man <laughs> so 
I have to say the first act, I have never quite sung like that in my life and I don't know how it came across, but I sort of felt like I was screaming a little bit. Um, not necessarily literally, but it did feel like such a big space. And I had, I think what it was, was that I had so much adrenaline that I just was kind of uh, overblowing everything a little bit. Then I got to intermission and thought, okay, I'm going to have to recalibrate here <laughs> um, because you know it was a lot. Uh, and then I went out on stage for the second act with a very different um, approach. And I thought, like you know, how uh, you know you obviously need to project, but how far can I go in letting this kind of be more settled and um, and feeling like you know we're in this world on stage and just playing in that world and, and, and not so much for everyone in this big theater. Um, and it was amazing because I gave a lot less, but then I could hear the sound booming much more. Um, so that was really a much better approach. And it really is a wonderful place, a wonderful uh, theater to sing in, great acoustics, and you don't have to scream. <laughs> so that was a great, also a great learning experience. <laughs> Other, um, you know, really wonderful memory of a production that I have is uh, Vanessa at the Wexford Festival in Ireland, uh, which was my European debut. Um, and, you know, it's so it's the opera Vanessa by Samuel Barber. And it is such a wonderful opera. I played the character of Erica and it's it's not really produced very much. And I don't understand why, because I think the music is so beautiful. The um, characters are so interesting. The arc and the, the growth, particularly of, of Erica, the, the, the mezzo is, well, a really tragic story. So interesting. And as an actress was so um, rewarding. Uh, I have a big regret actually with that Vanessa in, in Wexford. Um, Rosalind Powray was singing the, the mother. In our production, she, she painted and she's actually a really talented painter and in the rehearsals she painted a portrait of me that was just beautiful and I don't know why I, I didn't go back for it I absolutely should have taken it home um, but yeah I didn't. <laughs> Carolyn's story about the painting that she wished she had taken got us off on a tangent talking about props and if you'd ever taken a prop home and I have a story about that I had a very good friend who was a stage manager who once said to me she went to a singer's home and it was a well-established singer who she had actually staged managed in many performances at a particular theater and when she went into that singer's home she discovered there was an entire shelf of props missing props this singer had taken a prop from every single show they had ever been in and my stage manager friend then told him the story of how many nights when they were packing up a show because it's often a rental when they were packing up that show, hunting for the missing knife, gun, plate, because they couldn't send back a complete package of props and wondering, where did that prop go? Uh, turns out that it's in a personal collection of a singer. So my name is Jean-Michel Richer. I am a tenor. I'm from Montreal, Quebec. And uh, I was supposed to be uh, in POV this week singing uh, in Carmen, and I was supposed to sing Don José. It was my first Don José, it was a big introduction to it, um, but I don't think there's a better place to, you know, uh, try something than, than Pacific Opera Victoria because of the 
situation where they are, but also the the staff and the, the house. So, so I was really, really looking forward to it. Both Jean-Michel and Carolyn, who have never met, were both in Montreal when I spoke to them. It will come as no surprise that Jean-Michel became a musician when you hear about his rich musical upbringing. I've been a singer for more than 10 years now. Um, and um, I started music actually when I was nine years old uh, with a boy choir called Les Petits Chanteurs du Mont-Royal, which is a scola cantorum, and we sing for uh, St. Joseph Oratory in Montreal. And it's a kind of music study program. You start at nine years old and you finish when you're about 17. So I did a lot of music uh, very, very young, uh, and I played some trombone for eight years. Uh, I did a degree in trombone, and then I decided when I was 18 years old, I love to sing, and I should try to, you know, pursue some, you know, just just see where I'm at. And uh, so I, I took some lessons, and I auditioned, uh, and I did my bachelor, my my master's in, in voice and and here I, here I am right now. But the funny thing is that I started uh, to sing as a baritone when I was 18. And I, I joined University of Montreal, uh, Montreal in, as a baritone. And then I joined also Atelier Lyrique de l'Opéra de Montréal as a baritone. And after a year, I switched uh, to become a tenor. Having been a baritone, and moving into tenor. Uh, is there anything you miss about being a baritone? Oh, so uh, what's funny about mi the missing part about being a baritone is, is I would say to, to be part of some projects and the project is not resting on your shoulders. I mean, I love to be the center of attention. I think every tenor and soprano do. But at the end of the day, it's nice to sometimes have, um, you know, a balancing part um, because it, it, it's, it's nice to be a supporting actor and singer in, in a production because you can, you can have tremendous, tremendous fun doing that. It turns out that when he was a baritone, he was a baritone with great high notes. But one day, he was singing a concert with another well-known Canadian baritone, Etienne Dupuis. And what struck Jean-Michel is that they were singing the same high notes in the piece, but he could tell they did not sound the same on those notes, and it ignited curiosity and a journey for him to another realm, the land of the tenor. As you might guess, it was a very big decision to change. Think about all the repertoire he's learned over the years, all the roles he has studied. In fact, he would also probably have found that there were people along his path, teachers, coaches, who might not have agreed with this decision. It's a very difficult thing for a singer to move from baritone to tenor, or mezzo to soprano, or the other direction. You might actually remember that Placido Domingo famously started as a baritone. And of course, there's also a sense of self-identity. The way you identify with the characters that are traditionally in your voice type. A baritone is a very different thing from a tenor in terms of roles. As a mezzo, I was very seldom the love interest. Maureen Forrester famously said we were all 
witches, bitches, and mothers. It's all we're ever asked to sing. I asked Jean-Michel how he thinks about the move from baritone to tenor, and what told him to switch? I ask myself that question a lot, and it is all about color of the voice, and it's all about what the music is asking. At the end of the day, uh, the reason why it's written tenor part is not because Verdi or, you know, or Bizet has in his mind, oh, I want a tenor. He's like, no, I want this sound. I, was, I want this kind of, of sound in my piece because it's going to convey the emotion that I want to convey. Um, so it's why you can have like a Figaro that sings uh, like an A natural in, in his aria and having Alfredo singing not above uh, A flat in his aria. And it's fine because we, you want different characteristic of the same sound, but the baritone sound is gonna, you know, convey more that kind of emotion or feeling than the tenor one and vice versa. Um, and you know, like um, uh, Jesse Norman, it, it, she's a really, really good example of this. What type of voice is Jesse Norman? Is she, is she a mezzo because she sings Carmen? Is she a soprano because she sings Ariane of Naxos? I mean, she's just a great singer and, and she sings the stuff that she's good at and that's, that's, that's enough. <laughs> well, in her case, it's more than enough, but you know. Color is a word we use a lot to describe voices and it can be confusing for people. In my conversation with Carolyn about Mozart singing, Dorabella versus Carmen, we talked about color too and debated how best to express that to people. I really love Jean-Michel's explanation about this tricky word, that color really means what is the emotion and story the composer is trying to express. And then ask yourself, what voice will best serve that vision? It's a really great question. But let's get back to Carmen. So let's, well, let's talk a little bit then about Carmen, because in that opera, there are many recordings that one mm -hmm. can listen to, many different singers with different instruments, different toolkits, yeah. uh, sing all the roles. So who did you sort of turn to to listen to as a bit of a guide for your instrument? What's your favorite tenor in your role? Yeah, um, it's funny. Uh, because of, you know, what we just discussed about, you know, the color and the what is the purpose of like your voice in the in the music? Um, there's been a, there's always a shifts in uh, interpretation of of, uh, of those kind of work of, of big operas because everybody wants to kind of like put their signature. So I mean I've been listening to uh, Neil Shikoff and the Saijo Ozawa version, and I mean. Uh, Shikov is one of my favorite tenors. I, I would say if I had to pick one, I would pick Shikov because he's, he's so uh, emotionally connected. You know, it's really, really difficult to not feel something when you're listening to this guy. And I mean, of course, he's a great, you know, technical singer. He sings really well, but it's not the first thing that comes in mind. It's really about the emotion. What is your favorite scene in Carmen to sing? Having not yet got to the staging point, but just what were you most looking forward to singing? Oh, um, scene-wise, I think the, the finale of Act uh, Three is something that I've, I've been looking forward. Like, 
for many reasons, like I'm as excited as I am, uh, you know, a bit fearful a bit <laughs> about this, that scene, because it, it is just like all out. No, I mean, every time I listen to it, I'm, I, I'm sobbing. So, so just, just for that, that thrill. Uh, and, and also because I never sang it in public. Uh, because I did, uh, last year, I did a, a, a show when there were excerpts of Carmen. So I did many times the final scene, which is, I mean, it's one of the hottest scenes and the, the, the most emotional one, I think, ever written. I mean, there's, there's so much tension and it's great to, to play and it's great to sing. And it, but, but I know what it is. So, so for, just for the... the, the Act three, final scene, it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> My final question for Jean-Michel was to share with me a very memorable performance experience that he's had. And I was surprised by his answer. <laughs> I, I smiled when I read the, that question because um, I, I thought for a second that it was really planted. Because one of the big, 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 big uh, memories that I have as a as a singer is when I did Les Falouettes. And we created that in Montreal, but it was a co-production with Pacific Opera Victoria. And I sang it uh, in Victoria in uh, 2017. And um, I mean, it was, it was really incredible. Uh, just maybe to put the people in context, uh, Les Falouettes is uh, based on the play of Michel-Marc Bouchard of the same same title in English we say lilies there's been a movie in the 90s uh, that has been made about that that story and it's basically the story of those two teenagers uh, that fall in love in this remote uh, um, town uh, of uh, Quebec and as many uh, Canadian cities uh, with a culture really weaved uh, with religion it creates some tensions uh, between, uh, you know, the society and and those two boys. Um, and it's kind of like the the, the Quebecois Romeo and Juliet. And I was uh, probably uh, you could say I was Juliet in the in that case. Uh, and I mean, it was so incredible to do uh, for many reasons. Uh, a Canadian, uh, you know, premiere. Uh, we created opera. I'm a firm believer that uh, opera is something that needs to be created often so we can appreciate what uh, what we we did in the past. You know, I, I I give this example that you know if you have like a favorite movie, um, me is Jesus de Montréal de Denis Arcand, and I listen to it maybe once a year, but you don't listen to your favorite movie like twice a year you, you do once but not twice and i feel that opera they need to opera needs to do the same i mean we need that not de figaro we need that that bohème that Werther, that manon but at the same time we need the new work so we can you know see where it can go and then we can go back and and that's that's how we keep our art form not to become a, a museum art form, which is fine. But I don't think that's what we want. So I, well, that's what that's not what I want. So 
so that was great. So yeah, Les Faluettes, Canadian premiere. It was my first, first role, you know, in the professional house. I was the lead, it was my first big gig out of the school. Actually, I was still in school when I was rehearsing, but um, um, so the experience, I mean, the, I was ready for it and I put it the work, but at the same time, it's like, you know, you're in your hometown singing, you're, you know, in front of your mom. So it was quite something, you know, it was quite something. Uh, people, um, the, the impact of that opera that we, we had was, we knew we had something, but we didn't know we had some, you know, something that impactful. Um, there's one guy who wrote to me after, after I did the, the, the first, and he said, listen, I've been uh, uh, a regular of Opera de Montreal, uh, Montreal for 25 years. I'm still in shock that it's been three days. Uh, and I already bought my plane tickets to go to Victoria. Uh, and, and, and we saw each other in Victoria uh, almost a year later. And you know, it's like you, you, you ask yourself, why am I doing this work? And then you do an opera like this and someone tells you a story like this. Of course, uh, of course you, you get it why it's so, it's so important uh, because you allow people to take this, this, uh, this trip among themselves so deeply and you know, in a way that they couldn't have done it without you. And, then you think, okay, my, my work is important. That's, that's something I'm really, really proud to do. It's funny because we were talking about Etienne Dupuis. So I was, I was sharing, sharing everything with Etienne on that show since he was my lover. In the middle of the opera, there's the, the, the infamous bathtub scene when I am naked and, you know, uh, because like in Romeo Juliette, I mean, I'm making love to my lover. And, um, so at the, at the beginning of the process, the process, you know, I remember the first rehearsal, Serge, he, he came to us and he said, look, um, I think we need it. And I totally agreed I, because I, I was reading the play and then Valier goes in the bathtub naked and I was like, oh, okay, 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 that's, that's coming. And, and it, was, it, it was serving the art, it was serving the theme, it, it was something really meaningful and he said, trust me, it's gonna look good. It's gonna, it's gonna be tasteful and, uh, and we're gonna work it the, the right way and it's gonna work. And, and it did. And that scene, instead of, of, of being something uh, fearful, it was something extremely powerful. Um, the first time we did it in front of people was at the dress rehearsal in, in Montreal. But in Montreal, the dress rehearsal, there are uh, some public from high schools and we're like oh okay uh, so there's gonna be two uh, you know two thousand teenagers in the in the hall um, I, I wonder I was gonna I was gonna go and actually it went great and 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 I got echoes from from teachers that I knew that you know that that had classes there and they were they were really, really enthusiastic about that because the, the kids, they, they got it, you know, they, they understood. And um, 
and it made a difference you know so that was that was that was great i mean you know <laughs> such a powerful story the kind of trust it took in a creative team so important to make that beautiful moment which i completely remember having seen this show in the royal theater also interesting to notice how these wonderful singers connect to creativity and their art form from the outside we would think that the metropolitan opera is the goal and it is in one way and i think about the story from carolyn and the met it was a big deal and it was rewarding but no rehearsal being thrown on stage with people you probably haven't sung with in a house you've never sung in is rewarding as a performance milestone but not necessarily a rich creative experience which is what we hear Jean-Michel describe in creating a new work with a director in Les Filouettes. It makes me think about the different ways producing art feeds us, the different ways we measure success in a career, like Eric and the moment he knows that he's an artist, and Carolyn claiming her space as an artist in Act Two of Cozy. Jean-Michel has already sung most of the roles on his bucket list, he has sung in the operas La Boheme, Werther, Manon Lescaut, and so it was a very tricky question for him when I asked him what role does he still dream of singing? My dream role has not yet been uh, written. And um, I think I, I think it's the hopeful thing to, to have, but uh, I'm, I'm quite confident that it could happen. Um, yeah, because so far I've been so lucky because I sang all those roles already and there's only few that I need to add to the list so I can say, well, I mean, I'm, I've been really, really fortunate so far. So I hope, I hope it's not written yet. I love that he shouted out to new opera, something that we can often feel less drawn to uh, because we don't know what it is and it's not the same as going to hear the arias and the duets and the ensembles that we love but inspiring to me to hear an artist of his caliber really want to be invested in new work. But since he didn't have a dream role for us to add to our playlist, I asked if he might share what he's listening to these days. I'm listening to, you know, the traditional things that of my youth, like Daniel Bélanger, which is a, he's a, a, a really famous artist here in Quebec. Uh, La Folie en Quatre is probably one of my favorite songs of him. Um, but last week we discovered, we did like, we do, you know, uh, we did an Italian night because, you know, we want to, you know, break the, the monotony of, of the confinement. So we did some pasta and carbonara. So uh, we decided to listen to, um, to Italian music, but not operatic. So we, we stumbled on uh, uh, this woman called Nila Pizzi. And Nila Pizzi is a singer from the 50s. And she's amazing. She's really, really great. And we, we've been listening to a song of her called Grazie dei Fior. And it's just such great music, a bit like Charles Navo music or Edith Piaf music, but in the in Italian version. And that's been really comforting for me. So I think uh, if there's something to put, Grazie dei Fior is a great song. What are you listening to for comfort? or to remind you of performances you've loved. Why not email me at listeningparty at pacificopera.ca and share with me some of your favorite music and maybe a story about why you love it. 
in a future podcast episode, I really look forward to sharing the stories you send me. And don't forget, now is the time to click on the link and head over to the Spotify playlist, which features music that was mentioned in this week's podcast. As always, there are bonus tracks. On this podcast, you probably hear about 15% of the conversations I'm having. And on the webpage, I always leave you with some liner notes, which gives me a chance to share some of the other music and tidbits of stories that the singers have shared with me. Next week, I'm going to be bringing you two local artists who've created a brand new piece of music theatre, The Book of My Shames. I'll be talking with Victoria-born and bass tenor Isaiah Bell and co-artistic and marketing director of Intrepid Theatre and the director of this piece, Sean Gist. Originally, Pacific Opera was co-producing this show for a run at the Bauman Centre as part of Intrepid Theatre's UNOFest. UNOFest is now being offered as an online experience, including Sean and Isaiah's show. I know they will have many stories to share about creating this work and maybe to share some music with me that's helped make them into the artists they are today. Thanks for listening. And until we meet again in next week's episode, be safe, stay connected virtually with friends and family, and don't forget to indulge in some beautiful, soul-satisfying music. I'm Rebecca Haas. Thanks for listening.